Hi, and great to be with you again for the last in our series on faith in a time of crisis. Uh, We've been looking at faith and a whole series of questions about faith. And today, uh, finally, um, we're going to ask the question, is it worth it to continue in faith, even when when life um, throws us uh, lemons and so on, you know, when life is going really badly and we're questioning uh, whether whether it's worth it, like it's sometimes so hard to, to keep on in this Christian life, is it worth it? So we're going to ask that question and we're going to do so by looking at Psalm 73, which is a psalm uh, written so many centuries ago, uh, which moves from a pit of despair and envy and discontent to a real spiritual high, and we're going to examine like how that how that happens in the life of the person that wrote the psalm. But first, I want to ask you whether you remember um, the, these lyrics. They're from a song. They're from a song out of my childhood, perhaps yours as well. A song written by Francis Swan and Gary Frost. I don't know if that's giving anything away, uh, but let's see if you know it. Here is here are the lyrics. There's a little boy waiting at the counter of the corner shop. He's been waiting down there, waiting half the day. We never ever see him from the top. He gets pushed around, knocked to the ground, but he gets to his feet and he says, what does he say? He says, what about me? It isn't fair. I've had enough now. I want my share. Can't you see? I want to live, but you just take more than you give. I wonder if you've ever, (laughs) do you know that song and have you sung it in the shower or have you had it at full volume as you've driven up the highway? Because there are times in life where we're on the same page as that lyricist. Uh, Yeah, what about me? It isn't fair. And really Psalm 73, this psalm written by, it says written by Asaph, um, who was uh, in fact the chief worship leader for the people of Israel at the time. Um, it's like a, a, you know, a very old version of, of the same kind of song, but from a spirit through a spiritual lens. And the song starts with Asaph declaring what he knows he should believe, what he does believe. Well, he's not sure, but he's, he at least knows that he, he can say, still say it. Surely, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But at the same time that he says that. In the same song, if you like, in Psalm 73, a little bit later on, he says, surely in vain I've kept my heart pure. So he sees himself as the pure in heart, but he says, all day long I'm afflicted. Every morning brings new punishment. Hmm. So for him there's this great contradiction between these two things. Um, And psychologists call that kind of like cognitive dissonance when we're trying to hold two quite contradictory thoughts or beliefs or sets of values. Um, So for Asaph, on the one hand, he knows, yes, God is good to Israel and to those that are pure in heart. But there's another part of him that says, hang on, I'm pure in heart and God is not being good to me. Uh, All day long I'm afflicted. Every morning, he says, brings new punishments. Um, So he's got these two contradictory truths. They're both true. His present experience and doctrinally or creedally what he knows to be true as well. God is good to those who love him in a pure in heart. But he's not being good to me right now. Um, and I'm trying to be pure in heart. Um, so he's got these conflicting attitudes. And, and such a crisis is understandable. It's understandable because, um, you know, as we would all acknowledge, 
life is full of contradictions. Uh, life is full of things that we might say are unfair. Um, you know, ter some terrible things, terrible things that we read about in the papers, um, such as, you know, a little three-year-old boy who has his whole life ahead of him and yet uh, he, he drowns in the backyard pool in just the slightest, ever so brief moment of distraction by his parents. Um, or a plane, a commercial plane, full of tourists uh, flying over a country um, where it's mistaken as a, as a war plane and it's shot down. Uh, unfair. Not how life should be. Um, or a business that's been going strong for decades and decades, maybe over a hundred years, and yet it's completely come undone in a couple of weeks uh, by the arrival of something like the coronavirus. You know, life is full of contradictions. Um, we had a past Prime Minister who said life wasn't meant to be easy. Um, life is full of contradictions, and that can um, make us question can make us question the goodness of God. For Asaph, there's a second complicating thing for him as well, and that is not only um, the contradictions of life, but uh, another thing as well. At a university in America, at Emory University, a researcher by the name of Franz Duval did an experiment with some monkeys in which in this experiment um, they taught the monkeys commerce. So they gave them stones and if the monkeys would give the researchers a stone they would receive back um, a piece of cucumber. So the monkeys were learning about money if you like and commerce um, and they'd get a piece of cucumber every time they handed over a stone. But then the researchers did something a little bit different. They started giving a couple of the monkeys grapes instead of pieces of cucumber. And the ones who were still getting cucumber noticed this um, and got a whiff of it and maybe they even tasted some of it and they started refusing uh, the cucumber. You know, they actually, they wanted what the others had. Um, even, you know, monkeys threw, <laughs> threw the cucumber back in the face of the researcher because they wanted, they wanted what the other monkey had. They wanted the grape. Um, and, of course, oh, that's a... It's an it's a, it's experiment which demonstrates how monkeys envying and envy, uh, I don't know how common it is in the animal world, but I know that it's really common in the human world. Um, there's a book, a fairly recent book by Jack Lewis called The Science of Sin, and in it one of the chapters uh, talks about envy and he says envy, envy, it never actually looks too far away. Envy, we tend to look to those who are, who are fairly close to us and envy what they've got. Envy always looks upwards to those we perceive to have superior competence, but not so much if they're deemed to be way beyond our station. We tend to feel the fangs of envy sink in most palpably when we consider those with advantages over us, but with whom we otherwise feel more or less on a par. Okay, so um, neighbours, peers, friends from school, friends at college or university, family members, work colleagues, sporting teammates, these are the usual suspects. Um, I think it was Bertrand Russell that said that beggars don't envy billionaires, uh, but they'll envy another beggar who has a little bit more than them. Envy is best triggered 
across relatively small gaps of disparity when a work colleague gets a more comfortable office chair, a neighbour gets a slick new gadget that you'd love to get your hands on, or an old friend posts photographs of their luxurious lifestyle on Facebook, um, describing envy. And Asaph says in this psalm that that is, was exactly the complicating factor for him. He says, uh, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I'd almost lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Um, so he says of himself that he was suffering. He was suffering from envy. Um, Mark Twain said, comparison is the death of joy. And humans love to compare. All humans love to compare. We ministers, you know, we hear about the appointment of some other uh, colleague to, to a different place and, and we can be moved to envy. Our parents standing at the school gate waiting to collect their kids can get envious about a pram, you know, like we can get envious about the smallest things that we don't have. Um, you know, it doesn't matter whether we're a doctor or a teacher, uh, for a human being, we're given to compare ourselves with others and maybe a nice way we talk about that is competitiveness, um, but we're into comparing and comparison um, can certainly lead to envy. And, you know, books have been written about it most recently, status anxiety. Um, we talk about keeping up with the Joneses. We, we like to compare. Um, and when life starts going badly for us, I, I think a lot of the time we can escape the clutches of the green-eyed monster of empty envy. But, but when life starts going badly for us, I think at that moment when we lose a job or we're passed over for promotion um, or we're sitting around where, you know, remember at Christmas time when you'd be sitting around and you'd open your gift and you thought it was great until you saw what your brother or sister got. You know, when, when, when things go badly for us, then especially uh, we are um, at, at, a great, at great risk of envy. And this comparison can make us competitive and it can motivate us, but it can also make us very bitter when we see someone with something that we would like and we think it's unfair and life's unfair and God's being unfair to us by not allowing us to have it. And our perspective blurs. And that's what happened for Asaph, who saw he sees everything black and white. He talks about the wicked um, and the evil. And he talks, on the other hand, about the pure in heart. And, you know, in real life, um, people don't tend to be those extremes. We tend to be a mixture of a bit of each of those things. But his perspective is completely blurred and he's looking at people and going, look at all the evil people, the people who couldn't care less about God, people who couldn't care less about living a life that God would be pleased with, people who couldn't care, um, who, who mock my faith. These are the people, he says, um, these are the people who go on amassing wealth Pride is their necklace. They're free from human burdens. Their bodies are healthy and strong. So for him, he's got this complicating factor of he's looking at people who mock at his beliefs and yet look at what they've got. And what's the point of him being pure in heart, he says? Surely in vain, without any hope of success, without any hope of fulfilment, have I kept my heart pure because every morning, he says, brings new punishment for me. So for Asaph, um, he's experiencing a crisis of faith. He is wondering 
whether it's really worth it um, to have faith because life is going so badly for him. What's the point? Maybe you feel like that sometimes. Uh, maybe on a Sunday morning uh, when we start going back to church and you'll be thinking, oh, I know, what, I know what a lot of my friends are doing right now. They're sleeping in, not giving of their time and their talents and everything else uh, to God, and, and they seem to have a pretty good life. But he does two things, Asaph does, two things that are golden for him and instructive for us as well. And the first thing he does is actually he doesn't share his discontent with a lot of other people. He says in verse 15, if I'd spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. Um, when I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply. If I'd spoken out about it, I would have betrayed your children. Remember that he is the chief worship leader and he doesn't want to undermine the confidence of his brothers and sisters, um, his brother and sister believers. Um, he doesn't want to undermine their faith. So, in fact, he doesn't speak out about it. And that's not always a good thing to do. Sometimes it is good to complain um, and to spread our discontent, but oftentimes it's not too. Uh, it does undermine other people's faith. And uh, so he, he doesn't speak out about it, but he does speak out about it with God. He goes directly to the source of his, of his anger and bitterness. And then he says, when I tried to understand all of this, it troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood. Uh, and he talks about how he understands their final destiny. Uh, so suddenly entering the sanctuary gives him this like eternal perspective um, that he didn't have. He was very much just sort of looking around him at what people nearby had and what they were enjoying, but he goes into the sanctuary of God and his, com his perspective completely changes. And I guess by the sanctuary he means the temple, and in the temple they would have worshipped God. They might have done it a little bit differently to us. They would have sung perhaps different hymns. Um, and, of course, this is before Jesus came and they understood what worship of Christ and its glory meant. But yet he's saying the same thing. When I entered into the worship of God, when I sang the songs about God's goodness, uh, when I prayed the prayers, when I heard the scriptures, when I met with my fellow believers, then I understood. And he gets this perspective of, of eternity. He says, surely um, those evildoers, they're, they're placed on very slippery ground. And uh, so he has this perspective that, um, you know, God's just judgment will come. Um, it will come. Uh, he, he, he gets this eschatological um, perspective of the destiny not only of himself but of others as well. And that perspective comes from entering into a time of worship. And he reflects on his earlier thinking um, as well. He says, uh, when my heart was grieved, verse 21, when my heart was grieved and my spirit embitt embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. So he describes himself as like an animal, if you like, like a monkey looking at someone else's grape. He says, I was basically unspiritual. It was unspiritual thinking that I was thinking before um, when I looked at other people and compared myself and envied them. But when I entered the sanctuary of God, 
then his perspective completely changes. Um, his spirit no longer embittered but encouraged um, and he's reminded of the very considerable blessings that he's enjoying right now, even in his trying circumstances. And he reflects on God's presence, yet I'm always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me. He's got God's guidance and you will take me into glory. He knows that he has a blessed eternity to look forward to. And this encourages his soul. Whom have I in heaven but you? Earth has nothing that I desire besides you. What a great statement to be able to say, Earth has nothing I desire but you, O Lord. Um, I'm thinking of Jesus' words when he said, this is eternal life, that they might know you, Father, and that they might know me and your spirit. Um, this is eternal life. This is glory to enter into God's presence, to enjoy God's companionship, God's guidance, uh, to look forward to an eternity with God. And so he's strengthened. My flesh and heart may fail, he says, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Uh, Rick Warren, a famous American preacher, he says this. He says, envy is resenting God's goodness to others and ignoring God's goodness to me. Envy is resenting God's goodness to others and ignoring God's goodness to me. And entering into worship, entering into the sanctuary, kills off um, that envy, kills off that poor perspective. And we get a new perspective on the outcome of good and bad actions, good and bad lifestyles. Um, we get a new perspective on our own heart and we get a renewed sense of God's presence. And so we see the psalmist who began with this great you know, two contradictory thoughts. God is good to those who are pure in heart, but hang on, I'm pure in heart and he's not being good to me. Is God good? Is it worth it, continuing the faith? And this bitterness, and we see him move to this um, spiritual high, if you like, simply because he entered the sanctuary. So, yes, life is full of contradictions. Life is unfair. Sometimes it's unfair to us. Um, and the result can be this dissonance. Um, but when we enter into a worship of our God, in just, when we sing songs, when we uh, sing songs of worship and praise, when we pray, when we read scripture, when we hear scripture taught, when we fellowship with our brothers and sisters in Christ, then we are reminded of our very many and very present uh, blessings. I like very much what a couple of other people have said, so I'm going to finish with a few quotes. Frank Hampton said this of this psalm, the secret of life is not what we have, but whose we are. The present is not permanent. And he quoted the phrase, this too shall pass, a greatly encouraging phrase to repeat to yourself in tough times. This too shall pass. And another quote by Charlie Dates, an American writer, the incongruities of life will destroy your faith unless you regularly enjoy God's presence. The incongruities of life will destroy your faith unless you regularly enjoy God's presence. Well, isn't it good that we can enjoy God's presence, even in this time of coronavirus, even when we can't physically meet um, as a church in our building as we are want to do, even still, we can still worship God. Uh, we can even do it when we're on our own. We can listen to Christian songs, we can read God's word, we can spend time with God in prayer. So please do those things 
um, do them often. Do them as the greatest antidote um, to uh, questioning faith, to a crisis of faith. Well, is it worth it to hang in there in our faith? Please do not attempt to answer that question without first entering into a time of worship with God. Thank you for listening.